The morning's message from Brother Matt Thomas is, is titled, In the Beginning. Matt is asked that I read to you from Ephesians 3, verses 8 through 11. Ephesians 3, 8 through 11. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Good morning. It's a pretty full house this morning. Did the sunshine bring you out today? Feels good, doesn't it? When we get a break from the gloom and uh, when it warms up, both. It's a win-win today. So I hope you enjoy it. It doesn't last. We know that. And so uh, maybe you can get outside today and stretch out a little bit and think about some of the things we're going to talk about in the sermon today. We are going to be talking about God's creation, largely, today. And tomorrow, you have the opportunity to go on a journey with God and with this congregation in the reading of the New Testament, which is our plan for educational purposes for us this year, also for fellowship opportunities. It's our plan for this church to grow. Uh, we all want to grow closer to God, stronger as individuals, uh, better in our relationships. We all want to grow. We want to be more than we are today when tomorrow comes. And so this is, this is a vital step in that process. It's going to, we're calling to you to, to engage you in this with us. And so as we talk about things through the year, you'll be right in tune with us. But the journey is more than just a journey through the Old Testament. It's a journey through history. Yet, it's more than that. It's a journey through history from God's perspective. And that's a very different perspective than man's. In fact, man's perspective of history changes as he desires it to change. We can rewrite history. We're going, we're going to be looking at history through God's eyes and how it really happened. And yet, I'll even take it a step farther than that. We're going to be taking a journey with God because God invites us into His mind, into His thoughts, he invites us to know His feelings and His passions about us and how He sought from the very beginning, yes, even from our Scripture reading, from before the foundation of the world, He sought how He would answer some of man's greatest questions. Like, how did I get here? What's my purpose? Does my life have meaning to anyone or anything or, or to God, if there's a God? He sought to answer those questions. He sought to answer our needs, not just our questions. Like, why do I feel ashamed when I do certain things? How can I be unafraid how can I come to know the Creator of this universe? You see, by, by natural reason and deduction, 
God has designed the universe and us so that we can look at it and see that there's a Creator. Romans 1, 18-20, Paul lays that out as the argument from nature that there's a God and all men should know that. Now, who is He? God sets out to reveal Himself to us first in the Old Testament. And we're going to embark upon that journey. All the way from creation up to the point of Christ this year is our aim. To Christ, not to the cross, not through His life, but up to Him, to His birth. Even the last day of the reading is Luke chapter 1. And then, if all goes well, if we're still here and, and we're engaged and we're learning and growing, we'll look next year at the life of Christ through the book, perhaps, of the book of Luke and Acts. There's 52 chapters in those two books. Isn't that convenient for a year's study? I think it is. But we have a lot of groundwork to lay. God laid a lot of groundwork. Think about it. Most of the history of man, at least from our perspective, if the earth is younger, most of the history of man is recorded in the Old Testament. There's been more time there than there has been since. He did a lot of work. Until that point where those angels proclaimed, For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Luke 2.11 And a shepherd, as the Hebrew writer recorded, a shepherd to the human race. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you, dwell, make you complete in every good work to do His will working you in you what is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Paul wrote to the Colossians and said that He is our all in all. He is the fulfillment of all things. And Peter said, all things that pertain to life and godliness we have through the knowledge of Him. Paul said, He's the fulfillment of all things to all men. Gordon said at the Lord's table this morning that this transcends time. This transcends culture. And he echoed Paul when he said that, Gordon. This is our all, Christ is. For all. In all. And, and, and in another place he says, He is through you all. In fact, our coming here was through Him. He was involved in the beginning. So this is the approach that we're going to take this year from the pulpit at least. And that is we're going to look at the Old Testament with a Christ-centered emphasis. We're going to look for Him in it. He's all over in the Old Testament. He's the pre-existent Word that became flesh. And we call Him Jesus, and we tend to think of Him while He was here on the earth more so than when He existed before the world was founded. But Timothy Keller uh, put it this way about Christ-centered preaching and the uh, advantage of it. He said, the Christ-centered preaching approach sees the whole Bible as essentially one great narrative with a central storyline. You remember, uh, I don't know how long ago it was, I should check, but maybe, maybe two years ago on, on Sunday evenings when we did the scarlet thread through the Bible. Okay, this is the idea here. A great narrative with a central storyline. He says, God restores the world lost in Eden by intervening in history to call out a... Uh, call out and form a new humanity. This intervention climaxes in Jesus Christ, who accomplishes salvation for us, what we could not accomplish for ourselves. 
While only a minority of biblical passages, he says, actually give the whole storyline. In other words, every once in a while you get that chapter like in Stephen's uh, narrative in Acts chapter 7 when he recants history up to the point of his standing there. cost him his life, but every once in a while we get a nice, neat, little, tidy package of history. He says there's very few places, though, that do that for us. Every biblical text must be placed in the whole storyline to be understood. When you're reading the Song of Solomon, Obadiah, well, when you find it and you read it, we want to ask this question, where's Christ in this? Maybe not first, but ultimately that's what we want. Every text, he says, must be asked, what does this tell me about the salvation we have in Christ? Ultimately, that's what I want to know first. I want to know that before I even know, how can this make me a better man? I want to know about my relationship with God. That'll make me a better man. If I can seek that and find who I am, my purpose in life, and what He wants from me, my wife will be blessed. My children will be blessed. You'll be blessed. I'll be a nicer guy. I'll be better. And so I want to seek that first. So this is our aim, to do this very thing as we journey through the Scriptures, which make us wise for salvation. As you open the Bible, and you may do so right now, to Genesis chapter 1, you open to the Torah. The Torah, the Hebrew name for the first five books of the Bible, and you read the record of instruction given to the children of Israel as they stood on the banks of the Jordan, about to inherit the land of milk and honey, as was promised to them through their forefather Abraham, back in Genesis 12, specifically verses 1 through 3, beginning. And he carried on that promise through, right on through even Egyptian bondage, and now here they are having come out, uh, come out of Egyptian bondage and ready to enter the promised land. And sometime in here, we don't have a lot of detail about this, but sometime during this spell, Moses, the busy man of God who was climbing mountains and coming back down and breaking tablets and rewriting them and complaining and praying and saying, ah, help me, managed to write the Torah and present it to the children of Israel at that time. Now, Several thousand years have passed in history before this was recorded at the command of God. So the timing of this is important. I really was tempted to go into this first off today, but I thought it might be kind of anticlimactic to get too deep into this. But you should know, this is very important, that Genesis was written for the Israelites for a reason and given to them at that particular time for a reason, as well as Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Timing was everything. You see, it would give them identity as God's people. First of all, as created beings of God, but as God's people who are part of this plan that He is going to lay out for them, and they're going to see themselves in it, it will give them purpose, identity, purpose. It will give them a context by which to understand their future and how important it is the decisions they made that day. 
would play into the future. It set the picture frame for them to understand who we are, what we're doing, and where we're going. Beautiful timing, too, because they're about to enter into a land of gross paganism. And if you've been attending any, several of the classes lately, especially John's, he's been delving into a little bit about what set God off to destroy the pagan people of Canaan. And when I say gross paganism, it was difficult to describe. Difficult to describe how displeasing it was to God. It upset everything that He desired from mankind. So He's going to prepare His people for this. They've got to know who they are and what they're doing. And Moses makes it clear from the first verse who the one true God is and why mankind needs a Savior. And rather than a a mundane history of names and places and events as some seem to conclude about these books, Alfred Bayless says that the Torah is stories. And you and I like stories. I notice as a preacher, when I start to tell a story, I don't have to say once upon a time. I could just say there was or this happened, and I've got all of you captivated. I, I know that. I like to do that at the appropriate time. You can overkill that. But Moses presents this in story form, narrative form. Here's what happened. And he captivated the people of Israel, and it captivates us today if we'll so take the time to contemplate the gravity of this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Bala says this is not just only stories. He said this is involvement with dynamic and crucial events giving us insight into life itself and our place in it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Ex nihilo, out of nothing, Moses said, and by His Word. Verbally, from nothing, created this material universe. And the earth was without form, and it was void, it was empty, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. He's ready to go. God's Spirit is ready to create. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. God divided it into day and night. How do you do that? Now the sun and moon aren't here yet. There's a light source. And He divided it into day and night. How do you do that except to set the world spinning? Were you ever as a kid trying to get a basketball to spin on your finger? Boys or girls? When I was a kid, I can't do it. I tried. I was so frustrated. I could never do it. But you know, God just set the earth spinning. The darkness and the light. So the earth is turning. He sets things in motion and He says, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters to divide the waters from the waters. And so, a great 
perhaps evaporation took place and lifted up into the skies, and the expanse he called the firmament, we call it the sky today. We're kind of lazy, aren't we? How about three letters? It was the firmament. It was that awesome expanse between waters and waters, whatever that meant. We don't have all the details of that. There are theories about what that water is, and perhaps that's the water that came crashing down in Genesis chapter 6 when the floodgates of the deep were open and the windows of heaven poured out. But he separated. Can you picture that? All water on the earth, and he lifted so much of it that dry ground appeared. He took a volume of water and lifted it up into the skies. And he called the expanse heaven. And so the evening and the morning were the second day. Then God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let dry land appear. The psalmist says that he lifted the mountains with his fingertips. He broke open the plate the plates, the platelets under the earth, perhaps that all the, the earth, the, the, the solid mass was together. And we have all this plate tectonic theory uh, flying around, and it sure looks like you could slam South America and North America into Europe and Egypt and uh, Africa, and it, it sure looks like it. Well, maybe it did one time. Right here. It made dry land appear. And a mist, or excuse me, Uh, When the land came about, he said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself. And a mist went up from the water and watered the whole face of the ground. Hold on to that mist watering the face of the ground when we get to the creation of Adam. And God saw that it was good, and the evening and the morning were the third day. Then God said, Let there be lights in the heavens, to divide the day from the night. And let them be for signs and seasons, and for days and years, to give light on the earth. Then God made the sun to govern the day, and the moon to govern the night. And God set them in the firmament of the heavens, as Isaiah and Job both indicate, He hangs them upon nothing. The earth is hanging upon nothing. How did they know we were just floating in space like that without any scientific discovery? He set them in the firmament. There's no axis like on the globes that we're spinning upon. From the beginning, we're seeing the universe as we know it now become clear. He made the stars also. Five words for quite an awesome display. And the evening and the morning were the fourth day. Then God said, Let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. And so God created great sea creatures. Think of some of them. Think of some of the ones we find that used to live. Megalodon, Plesiosaur, and these kinds of things. We still have the blue whales, largest mammals on earth. God made the great sea creatures. He didn't just make the little fish or the colorful ones. He made the awesome ones. The one perhaps that Job was describing at the end of his book in the Leviathan. 
And God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters of the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And so the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Then he said on the next day, let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind. I love this because God didn't just say bring it forth and it all popped up and he went, whoa, those are neat looking. They were already here. He had already designed them in his beautifully artistic mind. I want some to look like this, and I want some to look like they were spray painted, and I want some to look splotchy, and I want some to be simply beautifully plain in color and appearance. Some this size, some that. Some breathe this way, some that. Some walk funny to make my people laugh. And some to humble man. And he made them all. And it was so, each one according to its kind, which is of relevance to our understanding of how life came about today to its forms. They were formed on the earth and possessed the breath of the spirit of life. You get that in chapter 7, verse 22, when God was talking about destroying them. In everything that is the breath of the spirit of life, man and beast, 722 if you want to look. So there's a spirit in an animal that brings them alive, that gives them life, similarly to you and I, but, as we'll see in a minute, not totally alike. And God saw that it was good at that point in day six, animals are created. God saw that it was good. He liked it. He smiled upon it. And then in chapter 1, verse 26, God said, let us, 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 let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish, over the birds, over the cattle, over every creeping thing, over all the earth. Chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, which in the preceding verse, verse 6, which was watered by that mist that went across the whole surface of the earth. What are you made of? You're made of water mostly and dirt. That's what you turn into when you pass, when your body decays, you go back to dust literally. And we have literally water in us. I don't know what the latest scientific statistic is, but the last I checked it was, what, 75% water or something like that we are? I should have checked with a couple of you first. Mostly water. The water is heavy upon the ground. God makes man from the dust of the ground. If you're like me, you think dust. I hate dusting. It floats around, you start sneezing. This means dirt. It can be dry in dust form, or it can be wet like clay. And he formed man from this. And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being according to the likeness of God and in his image. This creature was different. He ranked above the beasts, the birds, and the fish, and the fish. And this creature was made in a reflection of God. When you saw this creature, you saw some things about God Himself. 
What's God like? You can look at man and see similarities to God. Barring the moral depravity, when you look at man, you see similarities between man. He would have a conscience. He would be able to think and reason and be self-aware. Aware that he is alive. He would be a moral being, able to choose good or evil, even his own fate. He would know joy and laughter. He would know grief and pain. And sometimes when I want to get in touch with that, a friend of mine, and I told, I've told you about this before, maybe even had you do it before, but sometimes just shut your eyes in a quiet place and listen to yourself breathe and be aware that you're a living being. It's an awesome little exercise. It puts things in perspective because you and I didn't do anything to fill the breath in our lungs. I didn't do anything to begin that. And here I am breathing, living, thinking, thinking about thinking, thinking about great questions of life. These things are the reflection of God, a living being who can think, reason, choose, Love, have the full gamut of emotion that God has? Yes, we are created in God's likeness and we have great potential because of that, every one of us. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. How many of you thought Adam was created in the Garden of Eden? I used to. And I went, what? There's a garden east in Eden and he took the man and he put him there. So I don't know where he was before that, but he put him there because he had created a special environment there where there was safety, where there was provisions, where there was everything he needed. And then he brought the animals to him to see what he'd call them. I love that. I'm going to give that to you. Adam, you go ahead and call them whatever you want. When you look at one, and you see that little hummingbird and you hear its wings humming, you can call it a hummingbird, and if it's got a red pat, you can call it a ruby-throated hummingbird. I don't care what you call it. Call it whatever you want. Have fun. I wonder how many of those names stuck through history. There's a study for some of you. When did the names of animals come about? When did that begin? I wonder how many of them stuck still today, the exact same names that Adam gave. That's interesting, isn't it? He brought them to him, and they came to him by him, and he named them. And yet, God had said, it's not good that man should be alone. That's the first time. That's the first time God said it is not good. We're in the six days here. He said it's good on day six after the animals. He put Adam in a good garden called paradise. He named all the animals, I guess good names, and yet there was no suitable companion for him. There was no one like him. There were those with living spirits coming by him by the dozen, but none in the image of God. And so God caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep, the first surgery. And he took a rib out of his side. He closed it back up in its place. And from this rib, this bone with its marrow and the blood within it, 
in the flesh, he formed into a woman and brought her back to Adam personally. Personal introduction. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. I'll call her woman because she was taken out of man. And I think that captures the reason why it seems so strange to many. Why would God create woman out of a rib? This has just got to be a myth, fairy tale. Or you've got to think a little deeper. They're made of the same substance. She came from His side. She's going to be the helper comparable to Him. She's going to stand by His side. She's going to become His wife. He doesn't want Him to look at her and say, well, after all, God took, took you out of my toe nail or my toe bone or her to look at Him and say, hey, remember, He took a piece of your skull and made me. I'm above you. I'm smarter than you are. He took a little something out of your head and made me. You want that. You want them to think equals, side by side, out of a rib which protects the heart. Hmm. Some of these strange things you run into Genesis, you just need to stop and study those things. And he presented her to Adam. And the tree of life was there in the midst of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said, you can eat of any tree freely except one in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the day that you eat of that tree, you'll surely die. And He conveyed that on to the woman. She knew that by chapter 3. But the Lord God had brought the two together. They became husband and wife. Why? For what? For... Fidelity purposes are the only two. There's a lot I could preach. I, I can't go into it all. But he wants them to be married. They're the only two people on earth. What's a big deal? Big deal. They're going to need to stick together. They're going to need to help each other get to heaven. Because in this context that the Israelites are receiving this, they're going to see that they're playing a role in bringing about a Savior who will help mankind get back to God. And He creates Adam and Eve and brings them together suitable to help each other. Not just her, Him. He's got to help her because here when she messes up in a little bit, God comes looking for Him and says, why didn't you help her in her time of need? Where were you? Yes. Man is to help woman. And Peter, later on in the Bible, in 1 Peter 3, 7, I think summarizes it so subtly but so powerfully, just the gravity of that when he says, Husbands, dwell with your wives with understanding. Give honor to her as to the weaker vessel, physically, as to the weaker vessel, that your prayers may not be hindered. But he says that you may inherit the grace of life together. That's why. You dwell with your wife with understanding. You're going to inherit something. Some say it has to do with the graciousness of salvation in this life. That's okay. That works. Become Christians together. Walk through life together. Some say that it refers to that you may inherit eternal life, the grace of life together. That works because that's the whole point of marriage. 
two people helping each other get to heaven. Now, do I need to do a sermon to young single people, older single people? Do I need to do a sermon to emphasize that you need to marry another believer in Christ? You need help getting to heaven. I got to make up some time. God rested on the seventh day. And then chapter 3 comes. Mankind wasn't the only intelligent being in the cosmos. You see, before the foundation of the world, God had created the heavenly hosts of angels. We learn this in the Psalms. We learn it from Job. They applauded at the creation. They were there. And somehow, somewhere, Satan shows up in the garden. He's around. The Hebrew letter tells us that angels are ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation. I believe then that God must have made the angels for the purpose of ministering to you and I here on earth to get to heaven. Well, that's kind of a bummer deal. That's a short straw. No, it's not. They're living with God. They've got a spiritual perspective of things. We sit here and we go, I wonder what the spiritual realm is like. I, I, I can't see it. It's invisible. I'd like to... They see it. They live in it. They know it. They have the advantage. And yet God granted them free will. And Peter and Jude go on to say that hell was created for the angels who left their proper abode. Where was that? With God Himself in His dwelling place. Here, live with me. And I've got a special duty for you. I'm going to create man on this globe, and I want you to be my messengers. I want you to be my tenders and keepers of that big garden down there. They're going to be very special, like you are. Some didn't like that. And whether he came in the form of a literal snake, or he was really just standing there and he was snake-like in his, appear, in his approach to her, I don't know. I, I really would like to find it. There are some who have strong opinions about that. I don't. I don't know. But I know the way Genesis is written that the serpent was used to teach us something like the rib was and like the dirt was that Adam was created from. So that's what I'm interested. Why a serpent? Now that I can learn some things about Satan from that illustration. I like him about as much as I like the real snakes. So it works for me. I mean, I don't just dislike them. I dread them. Ask my wife. Ask my kids. Some of you have seen me in the presence of snakes. But I learned some things about him. And you know what he did? He came down and all he did was get Eve to cast doubt upon God. Just You'll not surely die. I'll tell you what, God's motive is different than what you think. He knows something you don't know. And I want to tell you something to make you think you know something above Him. That you know more than Him and you know better than Him. You'll not surely die. He added one word. And he said, God knows in the day that you eat of this tree, you'll, you'll know good and evil. Is that true? And you'll be like Him. Alright, there you are. You mean we're going to be become gods, so to speak. And she's listening, and she's looking at the tree, and she starts doing this. Yeah, it just looks like any other tree. In fact, it looks really good. What could be the harm? I wonder. And this is how he works. 
Satan is not an atheist, folks. He's not an atheist. He believes in God. He trembles. But he hates Him. And he knows he, if he wants to get you and I to leave God and the love that we have for God through Christ and what He's done for us, He's not going to just come in and put some atheistic argument out there and we're going to go buy it and chase out. Oh, I don't believe anymore. The evidence isn't there. Oh, the evidence is contrary in my opinion. So how am I going to be separated from my God except Satan just start planting seeds of doubt that God hasn't treated me like I think He should? Or I know a little bit more than God, and this is what He did. And He duped Eve, who knew better. And she gave to Adam, and he ate, and he knew better. And so a lack of faith demoted God rather than lifted Him up. You know that word devotion, we've talked about this, it means to vote down. So if you're devoted to God, you have voted Him as your King and your Lord and Savior. Devoting has to do with, I devoted myself. I am devoted. I voted myself underneath Him in rank. And this just takes it and turns it upside down. He comes to the woman who was created for the man who turns his relationship away from God and man tries to stand above God and His knowledge. And He just took the whole created order and turned it on its head with a little deceitfulness. And that's how He still works. You wonder, what's His bag of tricks today? It's the same. And it led quickly, swiftly, to an ultimate end in this chapter 6 through 9. where the, It got to the point where even Seth's lineage of godly people they began to lust and they began to become violent. They had turned away from God and those are two things that happen to people who do not have faith in God. And it became so bad that the thoughts and intents of their heart were only evil continually with the exception of this one man and his family whom he saved through the building of the ark. It changed things. This tragic end to the race, except for Noah and his family, changed things, but it was a new beginning. It was a new beginning genealogically for us. It was a new beginning geologically, geographically, meteorologically. A lot of physical changes after the flood. But the flood serves as a reminder of the severity of God's judgment against sin. It's not God's desire to destroy men. Peter made that very clear in 2 Peter 3.9. He wants to save men from sin. And He's planned this from before the foundation of the world. You see, is there any hope for man? You see it in three places, and we're going to close the sermon. You see it in three places. First of all, you see it couched in the middle of the first contention in the garden. And in dealing with Satan's rebellion and opposition, the Lord God made an astounding remark to Satan, which seems so vague unless you carry it out through the Bible to its fruition. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her singular seed. And he shall bruise your head, 
and you shall bruise his heel. And while Satan will assure that the seed of this woman suffers injury on a Roman cross, some have even recently suggested, archaeologically, that as they drove that nail through the heel into the cross, that perhaps there was more meaning even than the snake striking at the heel to injure, but that it was perhaps a reference to the crucifixion. He'll, you'll strike his heel, but he's going to deliver a crushing blow to you, and he did that through the resurrection of the dead. You see, when Satan gets between you and God, your spirit is separated from God and lost eternally. You die because you're separated from the one who gives eternal life. You, you die, you have no hope. You have nothing to live for. There's no chance that you're going to turn it around. And God said, don't do that. Don't do that. I'm going to overcome death so that you have a means by which you may never die. And He did that. And we could have depicted an empty cross. We could have depicted an empty tomb. Or we can look at ourselves full of hope and see that this is where God shows us hope, and it's right there in Genesis chapter 3. You see hope in that God created man in His own image, because you and I have the potential and the ability today to choose God. We also have the ability to reject Him, and it's nobody's fault but your own if you do that. It's nobody's fault. God has given us all the case for His existence, His Son's coming, His Son's death, burial, and resurrection, and His whole scheme for mankind and His plan for eternal life. There's no excuse. We see that right in Genesis chapter 1. And finally, we see hope in that ark where God said, Noah, come into the ark. Come in. You see, God was in the ark. And upon the commencement of the flood, he said, now go out of the ark. He stayed with him in the ark. And in the New Testament, we read that that ark is the church. And God calls us into the ark and lifts us through a separation from sin by water above the sinful world to live. And he's right there in our presence. And Peter said that washing of the water such as happens in our baptistry back here, is like a washing of your conscience, your answer of a clear conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That is in Genesis chapter 6. You see, God's already working to teach us there's hope for man. The Israelites standing on those banks ready to go in and fight had reason, had hope, had identity. And we've got the whole hindsight. Now, won't you... Join with us in taking that journey beginning tomorrow. I thank you for your patience. It was a long sermon because there's a lot to cover. I hope not to do that every week. But you do the reading and you make the shortcuts. And let's have discussion. Come to the home Bible study groups and learn with your fellow Christians. Pick up your Bible. Prepare now. Make a note to yourself. Start tomorrow. Get on our website and sign up. Get the daily reminders, texts or emails or... However, and read to get this beautiful storyline with that central theme of your redemption in mind. Let's stand and sing this song, and if anyone needs to...